Let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand and shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. Heathen, He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give thee thanks for this word, and we ask that you would bless our hearts, that we might receive it, that we might meditate rightly upon it, and give us understanding that we might come to the Scriptures and open it and find great instruction for our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And I'm going to ask Nick if he will hand out an outline. I'm doing something a little different tonight, a little involved in this outline, so that's why I'm having it handed out now instead of before the service, because there will be some explanation with this. And hopefully I trust that this will be helpful and beneficial as we make our way through the Psalter. There should be enough copies, but if not, you can all share. As we draw our attention tonight to Psalm 110, as we here see a beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ as king and priest, it's a beautiful display of the exaltation and the sovereignty of Christ as high priest over the church. As we look to this particular psalm, there, as you follow the outline, this is what we classify as one of the royal psalms. There's been Uh, controversy um, by some scholars over how we divide the psalms, what uh, psalms speak of Christ and what psalms don't speak of Christ. There are some that are directly messianic, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, and Psalm 110 are what we call directly messianic or royal psalms. But there are a number of psalms that speak of Christ but are not necessarily categorized as directly messianic. As I've said before, and it's worth repeating, that all of the psalms speak of Christ. All of the psalms speak of Christ in 
one way or another. Perhaps uh, some of them speak of Christ as the one who calls his church to obedience. Perhaps some of them uh, call us to consider the work of Christ. And particularly in Psalm 10, we consider the work of Christ as we look here to what David says concerning the Messiah. As we have seen, this is the last book of the Psalter. The Psalter is divided into five books. And this particular division of Psalms 107 through 150 is what Dr. Robertson calls, and I think uh, this is a very helpful way to understand this last book of the Psalter, but he calls it the, the Psalms of Consummation because here it describes the culminating work of the Messiah and his kingdom. As you've seen throughout the Psalter, particularly in the beginning uh, two books, first and second book of the Psalter, there's a lot about the judgment of God's enemies, about the enemies of God coming against the people of God. But as you move here toward the last part of the Psalter, you see the theme change to a theme of victory, to a theme of triumph. And so here, as we look at this book of the Psalms of Consummation, we see the climax of the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why we see mostly psalms of praise, psalms of victory, because the Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the victorious king who rules over his church. The difficulty sometimes comes as we work our way through the Psalter, as I mentioned to someone this morning, this is perhaps one of the most difficult books of the scriptures to preach. Um, some might think, well, what about Deuteronomy or some of those uh, historical books? Those are certainly difficult to preach, but the Psalms are difficult to preach because they don't follow a chronological order. They don't follow what we as Westerners should think it should follow. And yet under the... the um, superintending work of the Holy Spirit, it is written and it is added to the scriptures in the way that it does, that it might give us some understanding and direction in how we are to worship our God. All of the Psalms speak of Christ and all of the Psalms direct us how we are to worship and give praise to this Christ, but there's also some wonderful instruction and encouragement for us as we think about some of these things. And so the question is, how do we understand the structure of this psalm? And this is why I decided to print this out, because it might make it a little easier to follow. If you're looking at your outline, these, this is a helpful outline from uh, Dr. Richard Belcher, who uh, is a uh, professor at uh, RTS in, um, I believe, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. But here, uh, Dr. Belcher has taken... The Psalm 110 and divided it into two sections. And really, it would be helpful, and I had difficulty with this outline, but it would be helpful if, verses, if the first part and the second part were laid side by side. You could follow it better. So just act as if in that outline you have verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7 here. But as you understand this, he gives what he calls two divine oracles that paint for us a two-part structure. And of course, this is typical of Hebrew poetry. It's not easy for us to make sense of sometimes. But I think this was helpful, and that's why I wanted to put this in outline form. 
So as we begin to look at this psalm, the first part of this psalm in verses 1 through 3 begins with an oracle that says, Sit at my right hand. And then verses 1 through 3 explain that and elaborate more on that subject of sitting at my right hand. And so as you look at that beginning oracle there in verse 1, he says, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, rule in the midst of thine enemies, and then thy people will be willing in the day of thy power. And so this hopefully helps to explain a little more how we're going to follow this outline. And perhaps uh, it might be a little easier to describe verses 1 through 3 as a description of the king, and verses 4 through 7 as a description of the priest. And so this is indeed a glorious psalm that speaks of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look there in Philippians chapter 2, as it describes Christ in his work as mediator, it shows that he condescends to us, and so there's that lowly estate of Christ, and then there's that high exaltation of Christ. And that's what Psalm 110 really describes for us, a picture of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there in verse 1, the scripture says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. And so this is the oracle that he describes here. But here, as we think about this psalm, it's entitled the Psalm of David. We've already seen, uh, as we begin this uh, last section, that Psalm 108, 109, and 110 are the last three sections of the Psalms of David. And so in these particular Psalms of David, he deals with the work of Christ, and he deals particularly here with this picture of this king who is sitting at the right hand. Now, as you look at that passage, it states there, The Lord said unto my Lord. I don't know why that causes difficulty for some scholars, but it does. But the Lord there, as you look in the authorized version, and I think this is, this is important to understand, why is the word Lord in upper caps? Because it's speaking of the Father. It's speaking of God who is sovereign over creation. And so it is the Father saying unto my Lord. And so who is my Lord that he's describing here? It's David's Lord. It's David's King. It's David's Son. But there the word Lord there is that word Jehovah, meaning the God who rules over all things, over all nations, over all peoples. And so the Father, Jehovah, says unto my Lord. And so my Lord there is in small caps indicating that this is not the Father, but that this is the Son. And as the Son, David here is quoting, the Lord said unto my Lord. And so David is describing this Lord, who is called Adonai, who is the Lord, the Creator, the one who rules He is my Lord. 
And here David describes him as my Lord or as my son. My Lord is David's master or king. David was a ruler of God's kingdom. And yet David realized that his days would come to an end. And yet there would be a ruler who would rule from his throne forever. And so David recognizes that there will come one who is called my Lord, who will sit at his right hand. I think it's important for us to understand that as he refers to him as my Lord, he's describing our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is particularly important because this is a prophecy of Christ, who indeed is the King and the Lord of his people. And so as he states there, my, my Lord shall sit at my right hand. And so David is describing here, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool. And so David here is describing this king, this one who rules over the church, that he is one who would rule at the right hand of God. Draw your attention over to Luke chapter 20, and we will see this next week, so you'll get a little bit of preview of this, but if you're reading ahead, that's good. But there in Luke chapter 20, in verses 41 through 44, Then certain of the scribes, verse 39, answering, said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any questions at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of the Psalms, and he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? And he's asking this of these scribes and Pharisees who were creating contention and strife. And he asks this of them and says, How is it that David, who calls him Lord can say then that he is his son. And so this is a challenge that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ to these scribes and Pharisees who are questioning his authority that we saw this morning. And he's pressing them further by identifying this Christ, this one whom David calls my Lord, who indeed is the son of David. Because David says that one of his sons will what? Sit upon his throne and rule. And so it's implying that the son of David, who is fully human, who is far greater than any king, who is far greater than any man, 
will rule as king. And so there in Luke 20, Jesus identifies there that he is the one who will sit at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool. Place of supreme honor and authority over heaven and earth indeed belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. There in the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, All authority is given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as a result of that authority, go and make disciples of every nation by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so here in verse 1, David describes his Lord as sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that's particularly important because as Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, he's sitting there, as we follow the outline, he's sitting there until his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus Christ will reign as king until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And so this is particularly important to understand that Christ is in heaven, that Christ is now ruling and reigning. There is no earthly kingdom that awaits. There is no thousand-year reign that comes in the future where Christ reigns. Christ is reigning now. And yet that reign will come to an end. When he returns, all of his enemies will be made his footstool. And as he elaborates on that here in this passage of Scripture, we find that Jesus Christ reigns, that he is Lord over heaven and earth. As Jesus was there in the upper room with his disciples before he was to be tried and and put to death, Jesus Christ reminds his disciples that he must go away. And he says, if he doesn't go away, he cannot send the Holy Spirit to be their comforter, to be their teacher. And so this is one of the wonderful, beautiful things that Christopher Love, who was a covenanter, um, shares with us, that one of the beautiful works of Christ is that his reign, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, is for the benefit and the comfort of God's people. He says the reign of Christ at the right hand of the Father and his return in glory are two of the wonderful uh, consolations that the people of God have. And Jesus even tells his disciples, you will have trial and tribulation in the world, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And so Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is there in his royal session. We use that term session in Presbyterian circles to define a local government, elders who rule, a plurality of elders who rule, and they rule in session, they rule together. And so Christ, in royal session, literally is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is what session means, to be seated. But what do we do when we're seated? We, we are ruling. We are governing the church. And that's exactly what Christ is doing now in his, in his priestly work, in his kingly work. He is seated 
at the right hand of the Father, not just sitting there waiting for some day that he doesn't know when it will be, because Christ does not know the day or the hour, but he's sitting there reigning over his church until the time that all of his enemies will become his footstool. And so this is a wonderful reminder to us that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in heaven, will rule over his enemies, and all of his enemies will become utterly subject unto him. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, draw your attention to that passage that speaks of this point that Christ is reigning even now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 24 and 25. Here Paul gives a wonderful uh, dissertation on the doctrine of the, res- of the resurrection of Christ, which is the guarantee of the believer's resurrection. And contrary to what some may say, if Christ is not raised then we will not be raised as well. And so there, in verse 24, Paul says, Then cometh the end, when Christ shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority, and all power. And verse 25, in present tense, says, For he, what? must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Time does not allow us to go into the particulars of that. I think this particular verse really um, gives us a picture of the fact that the reign of Christ doesn't begin in the future. The reign of Christ is now. The Christ is reigning and he is reigning until he puts his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that Christ will be destroyed, is death. And even for those who teach that there was no death when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and even those who teach that death has already been destroyed, it was destroyed in the past, 70 A.D., here the Lord Jesus Christ says He will continue to reign until He even brings death under His rule and authority. And so this is a wonderful consolation to the believer that one day death itself will be destroyed. And so when we see Christ on that final day at the end of His glorious reign, there will be no grief. There will be no sorrow because there will not be death in that kingdom. And so this is a wonderful comfort and consolation to us that all things in this present Millennial reign of Christ will come to an end and death itself will be destroyed. As we look there in chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 110, I draw your attention and we're looking at a number of passages of Scripture. But this is one of the few Psalms that is quoted in the New Testament quite readily. 
draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 1. There in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1, it says that in these last days, He has spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world, who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of on high. And then as he continues there in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Verse 5 Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And then a number of other passages that are quoted in the Psalms. He says there that thy throne, verse 8, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And so here we see in Saul in Hebrews chapter um, 1, verse 3. Uh, we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies, thy footstool. And so here, the writer of Hebrews is showing the supremacy of Christ over all things, showing that Christ is greater than the angels, that Christ is greater than Moses, that Christ is greater than any other prophet that was seen in the Old Testament. And so Christ will reign. And so David here speaks... Not of his own reign, not of his own earthly kingdom, as some would surmise, but he speaks of that glorious reign of Christ that would come in that messianic age when Christ would rule over the church. And then in verse 2, as you continue to follow the outline there, he sits at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies thy footstool, and that he will send forth the rod of strength out of Zion. Here, the scepter or the rod is that means by which Christ rules. It's a symbol of the kingdom of God's presence. And that as Christ rules in his mediatorial reign as king over the church, he rules with power and strength. And he rules... Not over his enemies. He rules in the midst of his enemies. And so here we see that this scepter is a symbol of the presence of God and of his strength even in the midst of his enemies. And so when you think about that mediatorial reign of Christ, that reign will invade all the kingdoms of the world. Every kingdom of the world is shaking. Every kingdom of this present world is, is going through great turmoil. And yet the one kingdom that is not shattered, the one kingdom 
that will remain forever is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rules over that kingdom by his word and by his spirit. And he will return in glory after that glorious reign. As the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in the midst of his people. Here is this wonderful explanation that results from his reign. It's a great consolation to believers that thy people, that is the ones over whom the Lord Jesus Christ will reign in his mediatorial kingship, he will cause them to be willing in the day of his power to submit unto him. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful promise to us. That thy people shall be willing in that day. And so we see that that willingness is a, a self-dedication, a self-submitting of ourselves unto the Lord. But notice there it says in verse 3 that thy people, those over whom Christ will reign as their king, shall be willing in the day of his power. There the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of His Word and by the power of His Spirit, will make the people willing. This is a wonderful consolation and comfort to us to know that as sinners, as those who have rebelled against God, those who despise His kingdom and His law, we will be willing in the day of His power. Think of the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke out threats against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord blinded him on that Damascus road, and his heart was changed. Paul was willing. Paul was able to take the gospel to the Gentiles because the Lord made his heart willing to receive that wonderful grace that comes from the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul is that example for us of that willingness to receive power in the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will reign. There, verse 3 speaks of the fact that they will be willing in the day of his power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. And here it speaks that, of that expression that is used perhaps over in Psalm 96 and verse 9. Draw your attention to that quickly. Psalm 96 and verse 9. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. And so here it speaks of worshiping the Lord, the people of God coming together in the beauty of holiness. And so the people of God come together to worship God because they have been made willing by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed who is indeed lovely. He who indeed is beautiful. He who indeed is holy and perfect makes his people willing the day of his power. To come and to be willing and made ready to follow him, to submit themselves unto him, to serve him as king. We don't understand 
fully when we read this on the surface. But this reference to they will be taken in that day of power from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Speaking there in in figurative language, it's using that language in Hebrew to speak of the fact that they will come forth from this Holy One, that they will come forth from their Lord, and they will not only be made willing, but they as His people, as the dew of youth, will come forth. And the Lord Jesus Christ as their king will make them willing and they will submit unto him because he is their king. But as we look at verses 4 through 7, we see the second oracle that helps us to understand the structure of this particular psalm. Not only do we see this king sitting at the right hand of the father, But we see this one who indeed is described as a priest. There in verse 4 it says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Again, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ as priest we see that he is one who becomes a type of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek is a type of Christ. But it says, isn't it interesting that he doesn't speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as being a priest after the order of Aaron? He doesn't speak of any other priesthood. He speaks of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And there in verse 4, we find here, that irrevocable decree that Christ will remain a priest forever. We don't have time to go into Hebrews chapter 6, but if you look there at Hebrews chapter 6, it speaks of the work of Melchizedek as priest. And there in verse 17 and 18, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled to thee for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So here, in Hebrews chapter 6, it speaks of the ministry of Melchizedek. It speaks of the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would make him a nation. And then in chapter 7, it speaks of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, back in Genesis chapter 14, who in his priestly role speaks of that greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here Hebrews chapter 7 speaks of the fact that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Having shown there in chapter 7 verses 4 through 10 that Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. That his priesthood would not come to an end. And so Christ's priesthood is according to his human and divine nature. The interesting thing here as we see this in the passage is that under the Old Testament, a man was either a king or a priest. You didn't see a man serving as, as a king and priest. But here Christ in his twofold office as king and priest serves after the order of Melchizedek to show that his kingdom, to show that his priesthood does not come to an end. That's the point of verse 4. That thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood under the Old Testament faded away when Christ came. That is the message of Hebrews. That that ceremonial work of the priesthood was only a picture of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ as king rules and he swears by an oath that he is priest forever. Someone asked me one time when my wife and I were members at Coral Ridge in Fort Lauderdale when it was becoming more evident that Dr. Kennedy's health was beginning to fail, and this was several years before he uh, went to be with the Lord. Someone asked me, uh, so when Dr. Kennedy dies, who will be his successor? And I kind of laughed at that, and I said, well, we're a Presbyterian church. We don't have successors. Pulpit committee will be formed. Uh, pastors will be interviewed, and they will, they will be they will be candidates and they will choose, the congregation will choose a man. Presbytery will step in and approve that and all of that sort of thing. So I had to explain that. And uh, it was interesting because he was thinking that somebody was just going to come along and appoint a new pastor. But the interesting thing about the Lord Jesus Christ here in this passage of Scripture is that his priesthood is eternal. He has no successor. His priesthood is one that will intercede on behalf of the people throughout all the ages. It's interesting there, and you see this in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2, that the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was a king of Salem. He was a priest of the Most High God even before David, even before Aaron's priesthood. He is a type of Christ. And you can go back and look there in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 22. And so Christ unites both his priestly office and his kingly office in one person. And so that Old Testament Aaronic priesthood becomes obsolete. And the Lord Jesus Christ becomes that eternal king whose kingship will will continue to remain forever. And so there, after the order of Melchizedek, there's an explanation as to what happens with his priestly role. Again, verse 5 refers to what verse 1 states, that he is at the right hand of the Father, and he shall strike through the kings in the day 
of their wrath. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ will literally shatter the nations of the earth. He will literally shatter His enemies in the day of His wrath. He will rule over them. And here we see in His priestly work, He is also a judge who will judge among the nations. And this picture, that's a graphic picture. We've seen some of this already in some of those imprecatory psalms, but here's an imprecation here in verse 6. That Christ will judge among the nations of the earth. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. It's a, a allusion to this promise of victory over Satan. It refers to that promise there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Where the Lord promised that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, that He would bring the Lord Jesus Christ, who would crush, who would literally crush the head of the serpent. And so here in verse 6, even in the midst of this priest ruling, after the order of Melchizedek, he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the nations, striking his enemies, dealing a death blow to them. So here we see the promise of victory. Satan is the God of this world, and yet Satan will be defeated because Jesus Christ is King of all the earth, yields the scepter of His Word over the nations. He brings people into the blessings of His kingdom, and He calls people to give obedience unto Him. And there in verse 7, we see the wonderful, confident response, if you're following the outline, that He is reigning until all things are brought under His reign. Christ draws refreshment. Christ draws comfort and consolation because of His mission in the world. And so we find that reference there in verse 7 to Christ drinking of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. If you look over in Isaiah chapter 42, I trust you're uh, writing some of these down so you can kind of look at this more on your own. But there in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 14. Jesus is called the Lord's servant. 42, 14. Or I'm sorry, 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his verse, his voice <clears throat> to be heard in the street. And there in verse 4, he shall not fail. He shall not be discouraged till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. And so here in this 
passage, we see that the distant shores, that the nations of the earth will wait for his universal reign. And it is in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ that the nations will wait for his law, that they will hope in that glorious gospel that he will bring to them. And there we find that Christ shall not fail. His ministry shall not be one that is defeated. His ministry will not be one of discouragement. But his ministry indeed will be a glorious ministry that will end in victory for all the nations of the earth. The thing I appreciate about the Psalms, and I don't think we we think about this often, and I've said this before, but I think the Psalms are speak strongly of our eschatology. What is our eschatology? Some people have an eschatology of gloom and doom, that all things are getting worse and worse. And perhaps there's a wrestling and a a struggle within the nations of the earth. Perhaps we see that, that great conflict because we will see that conflict between the, uh, the two races, between Satan's race and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that all the way back in, in Genesis after the fall, that there's a, there's a struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that will continue to the end. But we can think of eschatology as something that is, Indeed, um, um, a horrible thing. Perhaps we can look at things as getting worse and worse. But you know, from the standpoint of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, all things really get better. There's not some, some getting the world getting better and better through some uh, social cause or humanitarian work. But the world becomes better as the progress of the kingdom encompasses the earth as the Lord Jesus Christ brings more and more willing people by the power of his word into his kingdom, then all things do, as the scripture says, become new. And so there's a glorious picture of triumph here. That in the world, we will have tribulation. But Jesus says, be of good cheer for what? I have overcome the world. And so here we take fresh encouragement from Psalm 110 that the Lord Jesus Christ will yield the scepter of his word to the nations of the earth. And the question is, are we in submission to this king, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we obey him from the heart? so easy for us to read through the psalm and think, okay, just kind of make a note of these things. But do we have that heart of obedience? Do we have that willing heart that subjects itself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we find comfort in the fact that He conducts Himself as our royal priest and king at the right hand of the Father, reigning until his enemies are made his footstool, until all of his elect are brought into his kingdom. So the question is here for us to consider today is as we think about the priestly, kingly work of the Lord Jesus Christ, reigning at the right hand of the Father, 
He will continue to reign until all the nations of the earth are made his disciples. Oh, so our pastor is a universalist. He believes that every person will come to Christ. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says all nations will become disciples. And so Africans and Asians and uh, people in North and South America will become willing in the day of his power to become his subjects and to be ruled by his authority. And the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that work even now in his mediatorial reign. And we have great comfort and hope that as the Lord Jesus Christ continues to bring people into his kingdom by the work of his spirit, by the word, that he will indeed bring all peoples to submit themselves under his feet. And so as we think upon this passage tonight, there's a lot here. It's a wonderful passage. A lot of references found in the New Testament that we don't have time to go into. But it's a wonderful reminder to us of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, who brings us the word of God, who is our king, who rules and reigns over us, and who is our priest, who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And saints of God, that is great encouragement and comfort to our souls to know that Christ will remain king forever. And he will even in eternity remain as our king. And he indeed will bring all things under his feet. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks for that marvelous and glorious work that you are doing even now. We thank you for your mediatorial kingship. We thank you that you are ruling and reigning as Zion's king even now. And we take comfort and consolation in that when we see the nations shaking, when we see the nations at odds, as we see the peoples of the earth coming in conflict to thy royal law. We take comfort and consolation that you are our priest, that you are our king, You are the one who reigns over us even now. And so we ask that you would grant unto us mercy and grace, that we might always be willing to trust in you, that we might come to understand more and more the marvelous work of your forgiveness and grace, that we might understand that we might be a joyful people who know that our sins have been forgiven that our King reigns even now. So give us hope and consolation and bless this word to the benefit of our souls. For we ask it in the name of our priest and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us conclude as we sing Psalm 110. Reminding ourselves of these wonderful truths that we find here in this psalm, Psalm 110. Let us stand and sing together.